0: Get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. be pretty judgmental. Not quite as judgmental as my late Grandma May. But this apple didn't fall far from that tree. After I interviewed Dick Leitch on Monday, January 23rd, 1989 at his apartment on West 72nd Street in Manhattan, I wrote the following in my post-interview notes. Dick greeted me at the door wearing 501 jeans and a plaid cotton shirt opened one button too many. The jeans looked stuffed. Dick, who was charming, had the look of someone who has smoked too much and perhaps he drank too much as well. Hard to say. During the interview, he went from one cigarette to another, sometimes barely taking a half dozen quick drags before putting it out. Dick's apartment is a pre-war two-bedroom. The sofas were covered in wine-colored velvet. The floor was covered with a green deco oriental. I longed for the white walls and beige furniture of home. After reading about Dick in the 1960s and talking to him on the phone, I expected to meet a younger man. This is not the first time I've been surprised by the age of these 60s activists. I just expect gay men to be young. Reading those words today, I'm cringing just a bit. I'm older now than Dick was then. It wasn't until three decades after that interview, getting to know Dick in the months before he died in June 2018, that I came to understand him better, to actually grow quite fond of him, and to appreciate his key role in the pre-Stonewall gay rights movement. Dick Leitch moved to New York City on the eve of the turbulent 1960s, but he didn't come here on a mission to fight for gay rights. Growing up in Louisville, Kentucky, Dick had always had his sights set on the Big Apple. He said he wanted to, quote, go to New York and smoke cigarettes and drink cocktails like Betty Davis. When Dick arrived in February 1959, a crackdown on gay bars was in full swing, and only a handful were open. During the day, Dick worked at Tiffany's selling earrings. And at night, he went to clandestine gay bars, which on Friday and Saturday nights weren't so secret because of the lines of men waiting to get in. But Dick didn't mind the lines because, as he told me, he'd often pick up someone in the line and head home without having to spend a dime. A totally different kind of online dating. So Dick had zero interest in politics, but a substantial interest in getting laid. And that, coincidentally, is how he found his way into the early gay rights movement.
1: I was wandering down Greenwich Avenue, which in those days, nobody went to Christopher Street, everybody cruised Greenwich Avenue. And uh, I saw this boy I thought he was so pretty. So I kind of turned the corner on Christopher and stopped and leaned up against that building on the corner. And sure enough, he came up and talked to me. So we went home, and we fucked, and that was Craig Rodwell of the Oscar Wilde Bookshop. I became good friends with him and his his roommate, Colin, somebody, Colin Oswald, I think. And, uh, so anyway, I was seeing Craig, but every time i call Craig and say, you want to go to the movies, you want to do this, you want to do that, i said, oh, I have to go to, I, have to go. I said, Queen, what are you doing? He said, well, you know, Mattachine's very important. We ought have to be polite. Give me a break, Queen. I so you don't have to be political. Let's just go fuck. It again, no, 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 no. And so finally, just to be with him, I started hanging out at Madison. And uh, there was this guy named Julian Hodges who was head of it. And it was really in transition because half of it was this bunch of old farts, Alba and... Uh, His ex-lover, and um, Norman Kilpatrick, who was 87 years old, and all these tired old fairies. And they spent all these years sitting there, and they had bridge parties, and they had bunco parties, and uh, were looking so desperately for a pat on the head. Who were they
0: looking for? Who do they want the pat on the head from, and why do they want it? Anybody.
1: Anybody. Just somebody say it's okay to be gay, honey. It's okay to be gay. And uh, Julian, and Craig, and... uh, Randy Wicker were the radicals. One of the things that Craig and Julian and I were, and Randy were fighting was the "I'm not worthy" attitude. Sure, you're worthy, honey. You're as good as anybody else. Don't let him knock you down because 'cause you're queer. And the three old, the old queens who ran the place just hated, just hated all of them. And couldn't wait to you know just get these people out of my hair. We want to sit here and play Bunko. We don't want to do all this well, what, stuff. What characterized the the radicals? I mean, what did they what did they want? That all Julia was all, She wanted to. She was the only politician. I mean, he wanted to build voting blocks and do all this kind of stuff. And Craig and Randy wanted to demonstrate and carry picket signs and and be like like uh, Dr. King and take over. You know, we're going to do things. I mean, we don't have to sit here in a closet anymore and play bingo. We can go out and do stuff and take over the world and change everything. And so I kind of hung out with them and I caught it, you know, I caught the fever. And uh, so it was Julian and Craig and Randy and me. You well, know, That was just about it in that organization. Were there
0: regular meetings that you went to?
1: Oh yeah, the, it was set up, they had a little office at uh, oh, 1133 Broadway on the corner of 26th Street. It was on the third floor, it was a little tiny office, not bigger than this room. and. Um, They had some bookshelves, and they had some desks, and they had a telephone. And uh, supposedly they had this this counseling service, but what they basically wanted to do, I mean, they wanted people to come in and cry on their shoulders, and they all wanted to sympathize about how awful it was to be gay. And so we took over this counseling service, too, and uh, we kind of revolutionized that. I mean, people would call them and say, oh, I'm gay, I'm so... Well, come in and talk to us. We have office hours every night from, I think we have 5.30 till 10.30 or something. And since so people would come in, we said, sure, it's right to be gay. Yeah, you know, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And, um, I don't know, you know, I got, you know, modern-looking, more intelligent-type shrinks. And we did the same thing with lawyers. They they used to refer everybody to Erwin Strauss, who was this old lawyer quaint. or this awful woman um, who wore funny hats, awful old bitch. She got me out of jail once, though. But, <laughs> and uh, they were just, you know, shysters. They just took your money. They didn't care what happened to you. And so we got uh, Frank Patton from the Ella Stringfellow and Patton and a bunch of other lawyers and, that were, you know, interested. And you had a legal problem. We didn't care if it was because you got busted for being gay or what. If you had a legal problem, you call Madison. and we send you to a lawyer. We couldn't pay for you. You had to pay for it yourself. But we find you a good guy and we follow your case through and help you out because we were trying to develop test cases. We decided it was going to be the next step. And so anyway, we did that. But the, only, the, the next important thing we did, Castro, started putting gay people in labor camps. So we decided we were going to have a demonstration from the United Nations. You advocated then public picketing on behalf? Yes, that was our chance.
0: In front of the United Nations? Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: because we we we'd always wanted to demonstrate. And these old parts... Ah, no, no, you'll go to jail. People will throw rocks at you on the street. You'll get beat up. You'll get back. Hey. I said, well, everybody else is picketing. Why shouldn't we... This was at a time when everyone else was protesting the, the, for civil rights. It was a Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the blacks were marching all through Selma and all that kind of stuff. And, I mean, everybody was marching and demonstrating. And why the hell shouldn't we be? Oh, no, no, no. People hate fairies. You know, they throw rocks at you. Hey.
0: Do they think it would destroy Madison? It would destroy oh, no, the it's gay going
1: to destroy, cause? It would destroy the gay world. It was going to bring down the wrath of God. Of course, they had good reason to believe this. Because you know, they'd just gotten through the McCarthy years. You know, And they had good reason to believe this. So, you, so they put them down for it. Because, I mean, they had gone through a very bad time when, you know, as soon as you found out you were gay, you were fired from your job. You couldn't work. You couldn't work in Hollywood. You know, because you were either, if you were gay, you were probably a communist, and communists couldn't work in Hollywood. You certainly couldn't work for the government. Mm-hmm. You couldn't work for anybody who had a government contract. You couldn't work for IBM or somebody like that who wanted to work for the government, who weren't a government contract. And you would get fired on the spot. So they had a good reason to be scared. But
0: why weren't why weren't you scared? Why wasn't why wasn't the I new never had enough scared? sense to
1: be scared? You know, that's what it comes. To. People a lot of times people used to say to me, You're very brave. And it's not that I'm very brave, it's I too damn dumb to realize I was making a fool of myself. You know? Was it because you were young? <laughs> I guess it was because I was young and didn't have any sense. And so we did we got a cardboard, we made big picket signs.
0: What did some of the signs say?
1: Oh uh, uh Oh, 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 oh. Oh, my gosh. It's Julian oh, yes. wearing his little 60s hat. Look at that. Labor camps today. Ovens tomorrow.
0: <laughs> Homosexual <laughs> citizens want an end to government hostility. That's wonderful.
1: Mm-hmm. gay demonstration in New York.
0: And there were also, were there a protest planned for other places as well?
1: Well, that's the problem. You see, we called Frank Kameny, who was with Washington Medicine. And we told him we were going to do this, and Frank Kameny had been very avid to go out and have demonstrations and pickets, but he hadn't done any yet. And he got very upset because he wanted the first gay demonstration to be in Washington. And you were going to beat him. And to And we first were going to beat him to the punch. And so he quickly organized one down there. But uh, so he organized. In fact, that was in uh, that was spring summer of '65. Yeah. Um, Maybe. And I
0: know he arranged for a protest in front of the White House. And, you know. Right.
1: Yep. And he went he was very upset. But anyway, he did come up here for hours. Oh. And so our demonstration here was just uh, Julian and Craig and Randy and me. Any women? I think Madeline Cervantes. Mm-hmm. Barbara Giddings came up from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And Frank came up from Washington. Jack Nichols came up from Washington. Yeah, Have was, you talked to Jack? I haven't. I, in fact, I'll, I need his number. Oh, OK. I was going to call him. A, I usually, Usually every August he comes up to visit, and he only stops by, and we spend a day together. Mm-hmm. And I always get a Christmas card from him. Mm. And this year he didn't come in August. I didn't get a Christmas card. Oh. And over Christmas, I called a number of people who usually I talk to during the year and haven't talked to lately. And eight out of ten of them either have AIDS or the lovers have AIDS. Really. And so I stopped calling people. It's too depressing. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I keep thinking about well, soon since I get. My nerves together. I'm going to call Jack oh. and make sure she's okay. Please, Jack, be all right. Yeah. Um, anyway, there was about uh, ten or twelve of us, and Curtis and Al and Norman and all the rest of them were standing across the street watching. They wanted to be witnesses. You know, before we got beat up, they wanted well, they to be they weren't a marching. Witness. Oh no, God no! They thought it was awful. Some of the people wouldn't even show up to watch, and um, and we marched up and down. And the cops were very nice. And uh, cars passing by. Nobody said anything bad. Everybody was, get Castro, get Castro. And so we got all this support and it worked out real well. So we did it. We got away with it. And it was all wonderful. You know, like little old ladies and people going off to church and stuff would stop us and shake our hands and say, well, it's about time you people started standing up for yourself. And we got all this positive feedback. And, you know, the old guard was very impressed by this. And so they started giving us our way and letting us do more things that we wanted to do. We need to change, Daniel. Do you want to take a break, please? No, let's- tape two, side one. They used to have these crackdowns constantly, particularly around Times Square, where they're going to get the homosexuals and derelicts off the streets. And uh, they still, you know, now it's the drugs and prostitutes, but it's, it's, and they use the same rhetoric, mm-hmm. you know, for homosexuals, prostitutes, and derelicts. And um, always having these cleanups and these sweeps and these things. And so Ed Koch decided he wanted to get the queens out of the village. And so he started agitating. And it was in right, the papers. Right, this was 66. Yeah, he started agitating. It was in the papers that he wanted, uh, this, the village swept of all these derelicts and homosexuals and prostitutes and shit. What they were doing is these cleanup things of using police entrapment. And they make a lot of arrests. They had this vice squad, it wasn't called a vice squad, something on the police department. It was like a vice squad. And um, they were like traffic cops. They worked on sort of commission. You know, These cops were plainclothes cops. They were out on the streets eight hours a day in plain clothes. Nobody saw them and there was no working at a desk or putting in paper or something. And the only way you could tell these people were working was by the number of arrests they made. And it came to a point where if you wanted a promotion, you better have a lot of arrests. How would they entrap people? What was Well, the- they had a formula that they would have. They were writing in their notebooks. these little black leather notebooks cops carry. And when they got to court, no matter what actually happened, they would come up with the formula story because they would arrest you know, 10 or 20. And they get them all mixed up. They couldn't remember Tom from Jim from John. And so they just read this little formula out of their notebook. And every once in a while, judges would start throwing the cases out of court because hey, wait just a minute. The same thing happened to the last guy and the guy before that, and kept, you know. How come the same thing happens to you all the time, mister? Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes they would get suspicious. What was the routine? Oh, you know, the, he did approach me and he did touch me upon the genitals and he did invite me to go to his house for sexual purposes. So all, of the all was just, it required was just a pick-up and that was... Yeah, or, you know, a lot of them were hired for their looks. They were good-looking cops. They would go to bars a lot or they'd go like down on Christopher Street or in the bushes in Central Park or someplace mm-hmm. like that and they'd just hang out. And sometimes people would go up and actually talk to them or actually touch them and uh, they usually had a, a. They were supposed to have, a partner in the background who could hear everything. And they always said they did, whether he was around or not. He might be on the next bench working another number, but you know, working another arrest. But um, they always said they were together. Uh, and they would go to bars and stuff, and they would get picked up, or said they got picked up, and then they would arrest you, and take you to court and ruin your life. And a lot, a lot of people got arrested, particularly in subway tea rooms and in the park, were like. Closet queens, people who were like priests and doctors and stuff like that, who couldn't hang out, you know, like at mm-hmm. Julius's or someplace, they didn't want to be seen in the gay community. They get horny mm-hmm. and they go to these places, and that's where they always got caught. And so, most of the people who called medicine for referrals were people who had, you know, some standing in the community. It wasn't just ditzy queens. Ditzy queens rolled out, you know, some ditzy queen Barbie and ditzy, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, these were important people. And then the newspapers would say, well, you know, the cleanup uh, is succeeding. 500 people were arrested in the last two months and all that. Mm -hmm. And you knew every damn one of them was in a trap, and either a hooker or a gay person got entrapped. And um, it was at that time that we decided we would have our sip in. And so um, we sat down and talked about it. And so Craig and the guy I was living with at the time, John Timmons, and I decided that we would do it because um, the liquor law said that a licensee has the duty to keep his place orderly if he does it become disorderly he loses his license and so They would use this disorderly conduct statute and entrap gay people and then use that against the bar owners to close the bar So we decided that that was a violation of our right to freely assemble and we talked to Frank Kameny about it Talked to everybody about it and uh, the consensus was that yes, we had to do this and yes, We had to get press coverage, but we couldn't invite the television people because the presence of television cameras and all that recording equipment could make a place disorderly. And so we should just stick with the print media. And so we sent telegrams to all the newspapers and magazines saying we were going to do this the next day at noon at a place called the Ukrainian American Village on St. Mark's Place because they had a sign on the front door saying, if you're gay, stay away. And a number of places had that for obvious reasons. And so we decided that was the place. So we announced that we were going to do this the next day at noon. Did and you tell them you were coming? No. no. And of course, being gay, we were late. So we got there about a quarter past 12, and when we arrived, Ukrainian-American village was boarded up with the gates down. And all this press was standing around. Said, What's going on here? And the guy from the Times said, well, you weren't here yet, so we wanted to talk to the manager and ask him what he thought about this demonstration. And he said, "What demonstration?" And we told him. So he decided he's going to close for the day. What are you going to do now? <laughs> and what we had done, we had this letter, medicine stationery, and we said and it, simply that we were gay, we are gay people, and we just want to be served food and liquor, and we are orderly, and we intend to remain orderly, and please service or something like that. And then the three of us had signed it, and so we were going to present this to the managers. So. Um, That place closed on us, and so we said, okay, we'll go to Howard Johnson's, which was on 6th Avenue and 8th Street, where Crazy Eddie is now. Mm -hmm. And they were very hostile to gay people there. They used to, because they used to get a lot of after-bar crowd, and they didn't want it, so they started chasing it off. And so we went in there and asked for the manager, and this guy came out wearing the dirtiest whites I have ever seen, he'd obviously been dishwashing, because the dishwasher was out or something. And uh, he said, what's going on here? And we showed him our little note. And he said, well, what the hell you want with me? you got a waiter. And the press jumped up. Don't you know it's against the law to serve homosexuals? And he said, what do you mean it's against the law to serve homosexuals? And he said, they can't make a law like that. He said, In Albany? Three quarters of them are gay and all of them are drunks. How can they make a law like that? Give them whatever they want. So we got served. And we had no clue where we were stuck again with egg on our face. <laughs> And so they said, what do you do now? And we said, well, we'll go up the street here. There's a little place up here at 6th Avenue, I guess, is that 10th Street, where Trudy Heller's used to be? And um, it was called Hawaiian Village. And we went there. And this great big old mafia cat comes out with the only $800 suit and a big cigar in his mouth and crocodile shoes. Yeah, what do you want? So when we want to get served. He said, uh, so, get a waiter. And we said, well, "Give him a little note. I said, so we're gay and all that. He said, right, give them whatever they want to the waiter and the press said, don't you know you can't serve them? They're homosexuals. How do I know they're homosexuals? They ain't doing nothing homosexual. <laughs> so we got served. We had to sit there and drink our <laughs> goddamn Cokes. We're sick of Cokes by now. And uh, So you were trying not to get served. Yeah, we are trying to prove a point that you can't get served food or drink in New York if you're gay. Right. And everybody was serving us. <laughs> And the press was having a wonderful time. They were ordering vodka and tonics and everything else and getting shit-faced drunk on the newspaper's time. And we were ordering Cokes and 7-Ups and trying to stay sober and get this thing off the ground. And the press was really encouraging us to go ahead and do this. And so I was like, i can a great story. Yeah. <laughs> and so we were on the street with this press and yeah, ten reporters, only like three of them used the story, but they were all over there. And, uh, well, what are you going to do now? <laughs> I mean, said, so, well, I guess we're going to give up. You can't give up. We've spent all day doing this and you've got to make your point. And Craig said, well, you know, everybody's serving us. And Craig's kind of, that this is the little queen anyway. He said, you know, it's not going to work. Nah, nah. He said, well, have got to keep trying until it does work. I said, i got a great idea. I said, you know, that preacher got arrested at Julius's like last week or the week before. They won't serve us. And John said, well, you can't really go through this to a gay bar. I said, why not? We do it at the Ukrainian-American Village. Well, that's different. That's a mafia bar. I said, well, just to make any difference. You're going to make the point. And if Julius' is mine, fuck him. We'll we go to Julius's again, there are other bars we can mm. drink in. Stonewall opened down the street and uh, <laughs> by this time. So it was okay. And so we all went around to, Ju- to Julius's, and we walked in. By the way, Randy Wicker was with us. He was our witness. <laughs> <laughs> because we needed, he, the lawyer said we needed, should have some witnesses around. So um, we went in and we walked up to the bar and the man put the glasses down and asked us what we wanted. Remember all these queens are having cocktails at four o'clock in the afternoon very elegant, very grand queens in those days of Julius's. What and do you mean
0: by elegant? I, I oh, yeah, they describe them.
1: They all wore little three-piece suits and held their cigarettes like this and everything. It was just like 66 and they were all worked in Madison Avenue or whatever. They are just so grand and they were getting out of work and having cocktails and here we were. And so we go walking in, we ask for a drink and the guy started to make us a drink and we handed him a little note. He said, what does it say? I don't have my glasses or I can't read it. and so. Craig or somebody read the note to him and he covered the glasses with his hand. He said, I can't serve you if you're gay. You know that. You're with the Madison Society. You know it's against the law to serve homosexuals. And we got busted last week. We got cops sitting at the damn door. We got to go to court. Nah, 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 we can't serve you. And I looked around at all these sissies at the bar and I thought, carry on, girlfriend. But the bartender was straight. But, um, so we didn't get served. And so the press, you know, what's-his-name, took these pictures, and and the Times did a story, and the Post did a story, and all that. And so we got our coverage, and we were very pleased with ourselves. And, uh, you know, like, how can you not serve food and liquor to homosexuals? Don't they eat and drink? And people were talking about it. And it was on the talk shows. It became kind of an issue.
0: Dick Leitch wasn't satisfied with the great press, which included publication of that now iconic Fred McDara photo of the bartender at Julius's refusing to serve them, his hand over the glass. Dick took the fight to the courts, going back to Julius's and offering legal help. The bar had been deemed a disorderly premises following an entrapment arrest. For Dick, entrapment was the single most important issue for the gay rights movement to tackle. If you can't get together in public places without risk of arrest, you can't live your life. If you were a gay man in New York City back then, wherever you went, you risked falling prey to an undercover police officer doing his very best to trick you into letting down your guard and showing an interest in him. Back then, an arrest like that spelled personal, professional, and financial ruin for many. In the aftermath of the sip-in, the Mattachine continued its effort to push back against entrapment. Mattachine got the then-liberal newspaper, the New York Post, to run a series of articles focusing on the issue, featuring the stories of men caught up in the police web. Mattachine also participated in meetings with senior city officials, including the then-local Democratic leader, Ed Koch, who would one day go on to be the city's mayor. Koch objected strongly to any change in police efforts to, quote, clean up the village, which of course meant going after the homosexuals and the gay bars. According to Dick, then-Mayor John Lindsay and New York City Police Department Chief Inspector Sanford Gerlach committed to ending the hated practice, although it did not entirely end for some time. Remember, this was 1966 and the Stonewall riots wouldn't happen for another three years. So for all those who say that Stonewall was the start of the so-called modern LGBTQ civil rights movement, I'd like to know what wasn't modern about what these frontline activists were doing. As a matter of fact, the June 1966 issue of the lesbian magazine, The Ladder, that we focused on in our last episode, the one with the cover story about Ernestine Eckstein? In that issue, if you turn the page after the interview that Barbara Giddings and Kayla Hoosen did with Ernestine, literally on the next page, you'll see the headline, quote, Entrapment Attacked. The article that follows details the Mattachine Society's battle against entrapment in New York City, led by Dick Leitch. You see, those filament-thin connections that tie our history together, the ones I mentioned at the very beginning of this season, those connections can also be the strong bonds that support a movement. And as that issue of the latter shows in Black and White, those alliances, those bonds, were being forged, organized, and activated by Ernestine and Dick, Barbara and Kay, Frank Kameny, and others years before those explosive nights, outside the Stonewall Inn. Many thanks to everyone who makes Making Gay History possible. Executive producer Sarah Burningham, producer Josh Gwynn, production coordinator Inga Detaya, photo editor Michael Green, and social media producer Denio Lorenko. Special thanks to Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and the One Archives at the USC Libraries. Special thanks to Tim McDera, Fred McDara's son, who so generously provided some of the photos of Dick Leitch, including the one of the Sipin, that you'll find in the episode notes at makinggayhistory.com. Season four of this podcast has been made possible with funding from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Calmus Foundation, and our listeners, like Paul Smith. Thanks, Paul. Stay in touch with Making Gay History by signing up for our newsletter at makinggayhistory.com. Our website is also where you'll find previous episodes, archival photos, full transcripts, and additional information on each of the people and stories we feature. So long. Until next time.